I think, I think Ash did a pretty good job, didn't she? Yeah, well done, Ash. Fantastic. Not quite as warm round of applause as I think it deserved, but it was good. It was good. You did, you did, you did really well. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty serious topic that we're coming to today, and I'm going to pray that God would help us uh, to do rightly with it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's not easy, so let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this word that we can read about the beginning, how you ordered and established this world. Father, we pray now that in this time that you might help us to concentrate, uh, that by your Holy Spirit you would be convicting our hearts, showing us where we need to change. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active and pray that it might be so this morning for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started this series on God in mission in the Old Testament by looking at Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2, and we saw the blessing of God for a flourishing life, for those of you who were here last week. And this week, I want to think about that flourishing that was on offer from God at the start. I want to think, what's the biggest problem in the world today? What's the biggest problem in the world today? As you think about that, we can think in a variety of different directions. We can think about the blessings that God gave. One of the blessings that he gave Adam and Eve was peace. And one of the things that we see in our world around us is an increasing bent towards the opposite, yes? Particularly with, uh, with Korea at the moment, and, and certainly in Syria, as Glenn prayed just before. Uh, another one of the blessings that God gave us was satisfaction in work, and yet we see in this world around us, we see slavery and we see dissatisfaction with work. God gave us the incredible blessing of a connection with the created order, and yet we fill it, not with beautiful reefs, if you can't see that properly, not with beautiful reefs, but with rubbish. The connection that we had, which was a beautiful blessing from God with the created order, we've marred. And then lastly, we have relationships between men and women. I was watching uh, a recording last night of um, Arne Doe, who does his portraits. Have you guys seen that, that show? Apart from the fact that his painting is extraordinary, uh, he, did, um, he interviews them at the same time as he's painting them. Does anyone know who this lady here is? Rosie Batty, who's the Australian of the Year. And she told her story, tragic and terrible story, about uh, domestic violence in her house that led to the death of her son and actually to the death of her husband. Um, an extraordinarily moving account. In, in this small uh, example here, we see uh, something that's writ large across our society, isn't it? Uh, the terrible breakdown of relationships uh, in homes. And one of the things that she gave testimony to, as she stood on the street, as news cameras came to her house that evening, she stood there and she said, it doesn't matter how nice the outside of your house is, uh, on the inside there can often be terrible things happening. And, and what we need to know is that's, that's happening in the world around us right now. It could well be happening in our church right here this morning. And that is so far from God's plan for us in flourishing and in humanity. And it is a blight on relationships. Just as our pollution is a blight on the created order, as slavery is on the blight of what work should be, and on war is on what this world at peace should look like. And so when we say, what is the problem with the world, we can say all of those. God says behind these symptoms, and they are symptoms, behind all these symptoms is something else. 
And this morning we want to say that behind all of these absolutely terrible marks on human flourishing is sin. Sin is the greatest problem in the world, which isn't to diminish any of the others, but to show that it's the root of all the others. Does this make sense? So I'm not saying that domestic violence is any less when I say that sin is the biggest problem in the world. I'm saying the cause of it is sin. Are you with me? And the reason that we need to understand this this morning, I, I, I was thinking about it like this. If, if you're trying to solve the problems of the world, it's trying to get this plane off the ground, right? And I, I, had, I was doing this, um, getting this slide together, and Michael, who's um, looking after our kids this morning, but he's a huge plane buff, he looked at it and he said, that's the cockpit of a 737. I said, well done, mate, how can you tell that? He said, oh, it's the arrangement of the dials and, and where the flap controls are and whatever. Anyway, you and I don't know what they are, right? Most of us. If I tell you, hop in that cockpit and get this plane off the ground, what you can do is you can press buttons and you might even be able to make the, 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 the weather forecast come up on the screen in front of you or something. But here's the thing. No matter how competent you are in the cockpit of this world's problems, while you're addressing the symptoms, you're pressing buttons in the cockpit while this is happening on the ground. You're never going to move the world to the state that you want to because there are chocks underneath the wheels. You can press all the buttons you want in that cockpit. They will never work because you've missed the root, the cause that is out of view to you if you don't take a spiritual understanding of this world. Sin is the issue behind the problems in our world. And so this morning, I want us to look carefully at Genesis chapter 3 and to think about sin. And maybe when you think about sin... Uh, you, you, can think, uh, you can think about it in a variety of different ways. I want to take us back to the start. So last week, this is my overview of the Bible. It goes from creation there uh, at this end here all the way through to new creation at the end of the New Testament. We're up here somewhere. Last week, we looked at creation. And this week, we're looking at our second picture uh, in the Bible timeline, which is the fall. Just going to come up really soon. There it is, the fall. And uh, you can see that the world's gone... I was going to say it's gone to hell in a handbasket, but that's, uh, that's overstating it. it it's, it's ruined by sin, burned by sin. That's the state of our world. Uh, as you think about the causes of sin, you might think the causes of sin are all over the place. I actually want to say, rather than a map like that, it's a really straightforward line. Uh, it's a straight line from start to finish of what sin is. And what we're going to do is we're going to work through all the stations on the line to sin this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 3. So let's open our Bibles up. If we can open our Bibles up, that'd be great. Uh, we're going to look predominantly at Genesis chapter 3, but I want to start off uh, the first part of the story of sin. We're going to talk about Adam and Eve, but I want us to think about ourselves as well. The first part of the story about sin actually starts with a wonderful blessing. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. That's what he says to Adam and Eve in the first account of creation there. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we see this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow in the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the incredible thing. The account of creation starts with, as we saw last week, an amazing account of God's provision and blessing and goodness. 
God is graciously giving them everything that they need. Everything that they need. A garden filled with stuff for human flourishing. Fantastic. What a good start. The next thing he does is he gives them a command. He tells them something for their own good. Does anyone know what this sign is for? Oh, you can read it, can't you? I can, I can, I can tell you're reading the Cambodian at the top. Is that, is that right? Okay, so it says danger mines. Okay, so it's still a good garden. Okay, it's a good garden. But in there is something that, you'll, that will kill you. You with me? Have, have a listen to God's account here uh, in verses 15 and 17 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Just stop there for a second. They were free to eat from what? Any tree in the garden. They were born free and they were given abundance. Then it says, verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Don't play with the small plastic things with little spikes coming out out of them, because if you touch them, you will surely die. It is not good for you to go there. Don't do that. These are to be avoided, but everything else, totally free. You can enjoy it. So they were protected. God said, don't do that. It'll be bad for you. But here's the thing. In all their freedom, God gave them a way to obey. Can you see this? See, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm totally free, how do I know that I'm actively obeying God? You're free to eat of any... Well, I'm just eating everything that I, I'm just going about. But don't eat of that one. Well, in making that choice, I'm exercising my obedience. Can you see that? Okay, so God gave them a way to obey. So the story of sin starts with blessing and provision and command for flourishing. Don't touch this tree. Everything else is yours. Go fill the earth, subdue and enjoy it. That sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Anyone find these, constra- these constraints too much? No. Okay, good. Then we have something terrible happen. Have a look with me at chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, first thing is, what do we want to know straight away? Where did the serpent come from? Is that the question everyone's thinking? Okay, here's here's all the information that the Bible tells us about that. You ready? I'm going to tell you all the information. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Sometimes we can find uh, God's restraint on these things a little bit frustrating, can't we? But, but God, I want you to tell me more. Give me uh, seven other paragraphs about the origin of Satan. Nothing. Now, as, as we get frustrated with that, I, I just want to encourage you, God has not chosen to tell us more than that, and so we'll have to be satisfied with that. Okay? You can speculate all you want beyond that, okay, and, and certainly uh, other church traditions do, but we don't have more information than that. You're looking at it right there. And so uh, whilst it might be entertaining, interesting, uh, enjoyable to do that, I, I'm telling you we don't have more information than that. We just know that he was, and then we hear what he says. And we note that he's crafty. What did he say to the woman? 
And by the way, I'm going to give you a test this morning. I know it's Sunday morning, but we don't have the heaters on, so there's a chance you're still awake. Is that all right? Okay, so here we go. What I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you Satan's question, and you have to answer. Are you ready? Okay. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I'll give you you an opportunity to respond together. One, two, three. Okay, all right. Was that a hard question? Okay, all right. Now, here's the thing. Eve, if she'd been on her game, should have said what you just said. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The answer is, okay, good. And everybody lived happily ever after. Seriously, that's the answer. The answer is no. He did not say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. But you know what? The devil is so, so tricky. Did God really say? That's the seed. That's the start. Did God really say? And it's the same way with all sin. It starts with a question. Did God really say? And it's normally stated in a way that is confusing and over the top. So our our world might say something like, does God really hate love? Does God really want suffering? Does God really not want me to be happy? And we ask those questions and all of a sudden we go, well, it can't be a problem. We've begun the problem, we've begun the railway line of sin by asking a question that leads us to doubt God's goodness, which is our next point. First of all, it's all over with one word. Uh, the whole of the story of sin starts with, uh, with, this, with this question from, uh, from Satan and it could have been stopped right there with the answer, no. It's interesting that what Eve says next, it's absolutely intriguing what she says. Have a look in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now here's the thing, guys. We read that before. God didn't say the second part of that. He said you must not eat of the tree in the garden. He did not say, you must not touch it or you will die. I reckon, because Eve wasn't there, I reckon Adam added this. And Eve has decided it's what God says, and so she puts a man-made regulation in God's mouth. It's very interesting. So she says, we're not even allowed to touch it. God says, look, I didn't tell you not to touch it. I told you not to eat of it, otherwise you'll die. I think Adam wants to keep his wife safe, and so he said, honey, don't even touch it. And she's turned that into a command of God. And so now they're not even allowed to touch it. And that makes it far more interesting. I can get this close to it. I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. This is the way we do with sin as well, isn't it? How close can I get to sin without touching it? So there's a confusion. First of all, the answer should have been no. And second of all, that wasn't what God said. It goes beyond what God says. It puts a man-made regulation there. The second thing that happens, sorry, the next thing that happens in the uh, railway line of sin is that we start to doubt God's goodness. Um, I want you to imagine that you've come uh, to this park uh, with your family to eat at the, um, at the table there. Uh, you see that they're all full except for one table, and the table has this, uh, this sticker on it. Uh, wet paint, no fooling, this paint is wet. Now, what do you do when you see that sign? It is insanity. 
There is absolutely no one who walks past a wet paint sign. This is for real. No one walks past a wet paint sign without going. I don't get it, but it's true, isn't it? We, we have to decide for ourselves if what the sign is saying is true. We, we just have, we can't resist it. And so part of it is saying, well, in this instance, Adam and Eve are cast on a sea of doubt by this. Have a look, have a look at verses 4 and 5. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if you look back at 2.17, chapter 2, verse 17, here's what God did say. He said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. What's Satan's lie back to them? Have a look at his lie. Verse 4, you will not certainly die. It couldn't be more contradictory, could it? And then he adds the lie, the bit that makes it even more enticing. He says, don't worry, not only will you not die, God's holding out on you. The only reason he's told you that is not for your good. He's told you it because he's jealous of his position as God and he doesn't want you to be God like him. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want what's good for you. He's selfish. If God really loves you, he would let you do this wonderful thing. But he doesn't love you, does he? That's Satan's lie to us. We begin to doubt God's goodness. Is God really good? Is this really for my good? I need to touch the paint to see if it's good. So there's an outright lie plus the offer of taking God's place. That's a pretty powerful combination, isn't it? Touch it, oh, sorry, eat of it, and you'll certainly die. Satan says, don't worry, you won't die. And you'll become God. Well, there's nothing to lose, everything to gain, literally everything to gain if I can become like God. <laughs> can Satan be trusted? Let me just check with you, church. <laughs> can, he, can he be trusted? No, no, he's crafty. He's crafty, and so he cannot be trusted. Um, there's a really interesting thing in photography called depth of field. I'm a photographer. It's one of my fun little hobbies, depth of field. Can you see this picture here? You can see from the foreground where the um, fruit is lying on the, on, the, on the ground there all the way through to the trees in the back. Can you see it's all in focus? It's called depth of field. Okay? And while we can see depth of field, we can see all of the image all the way through. There's a wonderful thing. You can manipulate depth of focus. And you can do something like this, right? Where you put a single object in focus and you blur out everything in the background. Can you see that? That's called shallow depth of field. I actually think this is very indicative of sin. Okay? In the garden, how much did Adam and Eve have? Everything. After Satan has got in Eve's ear... What's the only thing she's interested in? The one tree she can't have, yes? Can you see how sin has shortened our depth of field? Now we can't see the abundance and we are focused on the thing that we can't have. Desire and obsession becomes the response to temptation, right? So we lose the garden and we focus on the forbidden. Are you with me? 
Now, now that, that, that doesn't sound like something just from this story here, does it? I mean, we know something about this in our own lives, don't we? We lose the garden and we focus on the forbidden. So I think the challenge then is to see that obsession leads to oversight of the other blessings. So when you're locked in in a sinful mindset, what you do, you focus there on what you can't have to the exclusion of all you do have. That is a tragedy. And that's where Satan goes. Then we've got the sin itself. Have a look at uh, at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. See, in the end, the the sin itself, you you look at it and you think, so what they did wrong was they ate. But but I want you to see there's this this whole bunch of stuff happening before that. Can you see that? The, The sin itself didn't just spontaneously happen. Bang. Oh, look, I sinned. It was actually being sown station by station by station along up to this actual point where you flick the switch and the sin is done, right? But there was so much being done before that. And so the sin is real and it matters, but it's sown so much before. And then I think it's intriguing. Her first response is to do what with the, uh, the fruit that she's eaten? Turn around. Hey, Adam, get some of that into you. I, I wonder if at times we seek to involve our friends in our faithful choices because it makes us feel a little bit better. It's not just me on my own. Come sin with me. Then I'm not on my own. It's our decision not just my decision. And so we draw others in to this thing that we've made. Now, I I want to observe this as as well. What is Adam doing? Sorry, he's eating. That is correct. He is eating, and you're correct as well. Jeff, what's he doing? He's just standing there. I I, I want you, let's let's get in the picture, okay? Oh, wow, we'll never look at these flowers again the same way, all right? But but here's our our tree. Here's uh, Satan. Uh, Eve, Adam, <laughs> I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's texting someone on his phone. He, he's absolutely uninvolved, isn't he? And here's Eve talking with the most crafty animal in the garden, getting God's command wrong, getting drawn down the track of sin, and her husband is there to do what? To receive the fruit from her and eat it. Well done, big guy. Thanks for your contribution. It's a disaster, isn't it? That's an absolute disaster. And so what, what, we, what we want to see is there's a tragic unfolding, uh, unfurling of God's created order. And what it means is something terrible for us. Now, I've got up there, I, I, I googled shame. I googled shame. Do you know every picture that I could find had some form of covering the face? Do you know that? I think that is absolutely intriguing. Shame leads to covering and hiding. Have a, have a look at what happens in this story here. So in, uh, in chapter 3 and verses 7 to 8, we see this. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God when he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And, and you can contrast that with 2.25, chapter 2, verse 25, when it says, Adam and, Eve, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. When they feel shame, what do they do? Cover themselves and hide from God. Cover themselves and hide from God. Their innocence is gone and now they're afraid of their maker. And immediately the lie is revealed, isn't it? Disobeying does not bring lasting delight. If you need to tattoo something on you, your choice. If you need to tattoo something on you, disobeying does not bring lasting delight should be the thing over our heads when it comes to sin. It will seem like a good idea. What was on offer? It looked good for food, desirable for gaining wisdom. I can displace God and not die. Whoa, I want to get into it. The first thing that happens after they eat the fruit is God-like power flows through them and they start rightly judging and ruling the earth. How much of a lie is it? They eat of it and immediately they collapse into themselves in feeling small and afraid of God's divinity and they cover themselves and they hide. It's the very opposite, isn't it? It couldn't have been a more horrible lie from Satan. Rather than feeling godlike and empowered, they feel terribly exposed and afraid. And they hide. It always involves hiding. Sin will always involve hiding. So we've got desire and obsession leading to sin, leading to shame. And then we get to this next bit, which is the blame game. Have a look at verses 12 and following. Uh, no, the Lord God comes looking for them. And uh, in verse 10, he answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Who's he speaking to, incidentally? Adam. Hey, bro. Left you with some responsibilities here. What happened here? It's a perfect opportunity for him to be responsible. And what does he do? Verse 12. Think of the voice he says it in. I don't know what he was doing, but here's the thing. What, what, what's he doing? He's not standing before God and going, I'm going to man up for my mistake. I have done wrong. I, I, have, I have disobeyed you. I have spoiled this creation that you entrusted to my care, this precious thing that you gave me. Instead, he just does this. It was her. Not my fault. It's such an abdication of responsibility. It is extraordinary. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's just everyone kicking the tin down the line, yeah? And that's the worst of blame in our world, isn't it? Not my responsibility. Kick it along to someone who eventually gives up and catches the can, yeah? We activate our inner lawyer when we're faced with our sin. It wasn't me, it was someone else. Or at least if it was me, I had reasons to do it. 
If you really understood what's happening for me, the sort of pressures that I'm under in my life, it's not my fault. It always becomes not my fault. And we'll point away from ourselves, despite the fact that we acted, we'll point to someone else and say, it's actually your fault. We activate our inner lawyer. And also we see an inversion of creation order. God had put man and woman in responsibility over the, over the creation. And here we have the creation telling man and woman what they have to do. It's a messed up world. And there will be consequences. Smash that pool ball down, things go everywhere. There's a consequence to what we do. Sin cannot be left unpunished. And so the Lord God says to the serpent, and we're going to have a look at those, those punishments here. He says to the serpent, you're going to eat dust from the ground. Cursed to you above all the livestock in the whole world. You're going to eat dust. And there's going to be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And then he says to the woman, well, your, your womanhood is going to be marred by pain. You're bringing children into the world, which is your joyful creation responsibility is now going to be marked with pain and suffering. That's called the midwives, if you didn't know. And then to the man, he says, your job was to tend the garden and to look after it, and, and it's going to be a nightmare for you. You're going to toil and sweat, and it's going to be a horror story from now on. It's just going to be hard yards. Every part of the blessing is turned upside down. The consequences of sin are shot through creation. Shot through creation. But I want to show you two things that surprised me in this account. There's the backside of a zebra. That's really just to keep you awake. But have a look with me at 321. I don't know what animal it was, by the way. Have a look with me at 321. You'll be surprised. God kicks them out of the garden. He says, you can't be here anymore, right? He kicks them out. He says he put an angel in charge of getting back into the garden and put a flaming sword there. But... Before he does that, have a look at 3.21, where it says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Did you see that? Isn't that extraordinary? God is banishing them. He's punishing them. He's cursing them. And he's providing clothes for them. There's grace in the midst of judgment in Genesis chapter 3. Extraordinary. And then even more than that, something even more extraordinary happens in chapter 3 and verse 15. Have a look at this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. When God curses the serpent, he tells us something extraordinary. He says that the serpent will have a crushed head one day and that the son of woman one day will be struck on the heel. That crushing and that striking happen on the cross. When the Son of God bears the strike of Satan and crushes him forever. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the seed of the good news stitched right in there in the midst of the curse. Jesus is the answer to the riddle of Genesis chapter 3. Extraordinary. So how does that help us think about mission? Well, I want to tell you three things for mission, and then I want to talk to, about, talk to you about sin. First of all, uh, we have a reformed theology, which means that we have a particular way of thinking about sin. Uh, they use this term of phrase, total depravity. It says in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And what we think about, when we think about sin, what we think is sin is dirt that kind of covers us. Total depravity, this idea that's in the Bible, says something else entirely. Sin is a cancer in our DNA. 
It's in our heart that we have the problem. However much we can do good things, you and I and everyone out there has been marked by sin in such a way that we cannot please God on our own. We cannot earn our way to heaven. We are shot through from sin and it was in our DNA descending from Adam and Eve, our first parents who sinned. You and I have a huge problem. When we talk about total depravity, we're talking about the breadth of our sin and the inability that we have, not necessarily its depth. So we're not as bad as we could be, but we're all out of the garden. Second thing to note is that we have a dire need, therefore. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, it says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. You and I, because of our sins, stand as enemies of the living God. What are matchsticks going to do? They're going to burn. We are in huge danger because our sin means we cannot go into the presence of God anymore. And right now, many are not right with God. Around us, outside Norham Park this morning, some of us sitting here this morning are not right with God and our sin makes it dangerous for us to come into the presence of a holy God. We have a dire need. But I want to tell you something brilliant because of Jesus. I'm going to read to you this passage. Uh, I want you to have a look with me just, just quickly. If you can get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want you to see that this is in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see these verses. Absolutely amazing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read to you verses 9 to 11. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, and this is what he says to them. He says this. He says, Or oh, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? First of all, You can't go to heaven unforgiven. Second, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And we go, well, phew, that's not me. Have a listen to the next verse. Have a listen to it. Verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is on offer here is something extraordinary. Something extraordinary. Right now, all can be forgiven for all. There's no sin that he will not forgive, the truly repentant person. This church should be filled with people who don't deserve to be here. And if you think you deserve to be here this morning, guess what? You got it wrong. And the first thing you need to repent of is pride. What God is offering is cleansing through Jesus. What he's offering is a heart transplant. You and I will be torn apart. We'll get a new heart from the living God, our sins forgiven and a fresh start on offer. Mission exists because of sin. Mission is possible because of Jesus. It's possible because of Jesus. So I can't talk about sin without getting practical. Let me give you five things before we take the Lord's Supper. That's what we're going to do next. And we're going to do it with confession. I'm going to talk to you about sin and then we're going to get to confession. Is that all right? And we're going to take the Lord's Supper where we're reminded why it is so awesome what Jesus did, his death on the cross, that enables us to be forgiven and washed and purified. So I want to link them together this morning. But let me talk to you practically about sin for a second. First of all, discover the lie. 
Consider what the train track leads down. So you're tempted at the moment. There's some temptation before you. Consider where does this straight train track go? What's the end destination? Because I promise you, it will not be what you imagine it is. It's always a lie. Discover where the lie heads. Secondly, stop sitting in its tracks. If you're at one of those points where you're thinking, actually, I think this might be for my good and I think God's holding out on me, I should do it anyway, can I encourage you, stop there. Stop sin in its tracks. Don't take the next step. Limit its choices. So don't go to certain parts of the garden, right? So if you know that wandering up the hill to where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is might be unhelpful for you, can I encourage you to stay down where the mandarins are? They're pretty good anyway. They're in season at the moment. Enjoy them. Fourthly, practice thankfulness. Regularly stop to consider the rest of the garden, right? So, hey, I'm feeling like I want to do this because God's been holding out of me. Remember that depth of field change from seeing all of the garden to focusing on the forbidden? I want to encourage you to stop. Thankfulness, when we practice specific thankfulness, we start to look around our lives and we go, I'm thankful for that. That's an incredible blessing. Wow, I'd forgotten about that. Practice thankfulness and see the rest of the garden. It'll save you. Lastly, can I take, encourage you to take a regular stroll with the gardener? Regularly walking with the gardener in the cool of the day will save you from having to hide from him in shame. Yeah? All right. When it comes to sin, I want to talk to you about two things. This is where we're finishing. Two things. They both start with the letter C. Conviction is from God. It's when you go, I'm dirty, I've done something wrong, but I want to come and get clean. That's conviction. There's another thing called condemnation. Condemnation has this in it, and it involves going that direction away from God. Condemnation is the whisper in your ear that says you're not worthy of being forgiven. That says God doesn't want to hear from me today because I've sinned. That voice is from Satan. The Holy Spirit will convict you to draw you to forgiveness. Satan will condemn you and make you flee from God's presence. Can you see the difference? Here's the encouragement. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through, the, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. God doesn't want you to feel condemned. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O oh God, will not despise. God loves to receive the brokenhearted. If you're feeling ripped up about your sin today, come to him. He welcomes you. He welcomes you. He does in no way reject you. So let's confess our sins now. Because God wants to hear from you. Because he's done everything to forgive you and there's nothing you can't be forgiven from. Let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and broken your laws. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you more and more. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Amen. And here's the encouragement from Scripture. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from? That's the offer of the gospel. That's the good news. That's new life right there. So let me encourage you, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Do you think he's worthy of all praise this morning? That's great. Oh, that was a really good coordinated answer too. Nice work, guys. Um, He is worthy of all praise, isn't he? On the night before he died, Jesus took bread. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and again giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And pray together. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. We eat this bread and drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death. We do this until he returns. Absolutely. Come, let us eat and drink in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving.